0: Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, I'm going to read the first six verses of this chapter, and I believe that these are six of the most important verses in this entire book. I'm beginning in Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Hear now God's word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, I confess that when I come to my Bible, when I open it, when I study it, I come hearing what I want to hear. I come wanting to be affirmed in the path that I'm already taking. I want a boost. But you're promising to do a new thing in us. You say that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can take your words and you can open ears and eyes and hearts to receive new things and to be transformed into the image of your Son. Would you surprise us today in the way that you do that for me and for us as we hear these words spoken from your prophet to us and to our hearts? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I want your permission to do something. I want to start this sermon, the first third of this sermon, the first eight minutes, delivering thick Ecclesiastes-style sarcasm. Okay, That's what we're going to do for a third of the sermon. It's just sarcasm, it's meaninglessness, it's depression. That's where we'll go for the first third. If then for the last two thirds, we could hear the sweetest news we could possibly hear. Can we do that? I don't know what I'd say if you said no, but that's what we're going to do. This is going to be Sarcasm. This is going to be depression. This is going to be understanding the world as it is and not as we want it to be. Hear this point. Every human endeavor will be frustrated. Every human endeavor will be frustrated. Every single thing we put our hands to in this life that we hope will define us, satisfy us, find worth for ourselves, it will not become what we want it to be. Not our marriage, not our family, not our child rearing, not our work, not our home, our health, our hobbies, not even our holiness or our faith or our little league baseball team. None of them will. It's not going to be what we thought it could be. It's not going to hold the weight that we thought it could hold. You and I, if we are human beings, we have an inverted Midas touch. If we touch it in this life, and if we try to put weight on it in this life, it will turn to ash and disappoint us. Every human endeavor, every human endeavor will be frustrated. Think of the million ways that this is true. If I try to put my self-worth in my parenting, if that's where I want to bank my hope, if that's where I want to get my reputation in the way I parent, I will not get the recognition that I crave from other people. I put my kids in public school, and there will be people talking behind my back. They will say that I've been co-opted by culture. They'll say that I'm sacrificing my kids on the altar of a free education and an evolutionary worldview. I will not win if I put my kids in public school. So I swing to the other direction and I put them in homeschooling. That's what we're going to do. We're going to homeschool. And there will be people talking behind my back who say that I'm an isolationist and I don't believe in climate change and I'm brainwashing my children. What if I put my worth in training up my child in the way he should go? And what if that turns on me and he does nothing but depart from the path? I will fail in my parenting. I will not get the affirmation I crave. My parenting, it can't hold my weight. So forget parenting. Get away from that. What if you sought to find your worth in your work? But right away we realize that that won't do either. What if I learned that my best days are actually behind me? That vocationally speaking, it's all downhill from here. What would that do to my idol of self-worth? I may fail to produce in my work. I may fail to produce. I may have thought up my last great idea. I may have landed my last important client. I may have made my last great contribution to my company. If that day is not today, that day will be tomorrow. I will fail to produce what I want to produce. But what if I do? What if I do produce? I will not be recognized for it. There will be moments, there will be times, there will be seasons where the credit, it goes to somebody else, and I'll be overlooked yet again for a promotion. What if I do it? What if I'm recognized for it? it will fail to satisfy me. Even if I get the recognition I so crave and I so fight for, it will fail to satisfy me. I hate to throw Michael Jordan under the bus here, but think about that man. He is one of the most revered athletes of all time. Do you think he is sitting in an armchair this Sunday morning completely satisfied in what he's accomplished? Is he a picture of a soul at rest? No. He's the butt of blistering ESPN articles that expose him as a grumpy, self-indulgent has-been. My work, no matter how good it is, no matter how impressive it is, no matter how many people know about it, it will fail me it is going to fail me. If I put my worth in my image, my body is going to betray me. If I put it in my mind, I'm going to meet somebody who is smarter than me. If I put it in my homemaking, I'm going to learn that my neighbor, she makes all of her own cleaning supplies and her house is spotless. She does it better than me. If I put it in my marriage, My spouse is going to fail me. If you're a Christian and you see the lay of the land, your temptation is to retreat into the church and carry those idols of neediness and a desire to be worthy and recognized with you into the church and you will replay exactly what you did in the world. If I build my reputation on being holy, being virtuous, being respected, sooner or later, I'm going to be found out to be a fraud. If I find my worth in my spiritual gifts and what I can do for the Lord, pretty soon I'm going to be surrounded by people who make my gifts look pretty unremarkable. If I become a martyr in this church, I lay down my life and I serve the mission of this church unlike anybody else in this room, I will not be recognized for what I do. I will not be appreciated for what I deserve. What is left? We as human beings were designed to feel worth. We're designed to be needed. We are designed to be loved and respected and cherished. It's like I've been given this itch as a human being that I now cannot possibly scratch. There's no alternative for me to go to scratch the itch that God has given me. The biblical answer is not passivity. The biblical answer is not to abandon these tasks. We're going to hear clearly in Jeremiah 29 that God calls us to these very things that will fail us, but it will do us no good to flip ahead to Jeremiah 29 and to hear that unless we will dwell in our passage, Jeremiah 23, and come to grips with what God tells us here. I want us to take a step back and understand that This passage is most potent to Jeremiah's second audience, not his first audience. We've been reading the book of Jeremiah. We understand he's a prophet. He's a loud prophet. He shows up in public places. He preaches at the street corner in Jerusalem and in the temple. That's his first audience. People knew him. They heard him. They listened to his words. Those are the first people that he spoke to. But all of these words of Jeremiah were written down in a book, and that book was delivered to Israelites in Babylon. After Jeremiah, he preaches Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he's going to come and crush the kingdom of Judah. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to tear down the temple. He's going to exile the people who were there and bring them into a foreign land in Babylon. And while they sit as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, these words that Jeremiah spoke are going to be written, compiled, and delivered to them as a book. And they're going to open these words and read them in their captivity. Talk about frustrated human endeavors. You look at these exiles in a foreign land and you are looking at a group of people who have lost every human hope. They've lost their homes. They've lost their homelands. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their savings account. They lost their city. They lost their temple. They lost their freedom. Many of them lost their lives or lost loved ones. Every human endeavor has been frustrated. I was going to make a snide remark this morning that 21st century middle class Americans, we couldn't possibly relate to 5th century BC Israelites, but I've heard too many heartbreaking stories in this room to know better. I'm not even going to say that. These are the places where all else is stripped away and we feel utterly exposed and almost undone. If that's you, you're on sacred ground. Tread lightly where you are. We may know the God of peace, but we are about to meet the God of of loss. What do you say to someone who has done this? You've watched them, a friend, a family member, a member of this church, they're in your life group. You've seen them do this. They've leaned on something in their life. They put their trust and hope and value on something in this life. They're talented. They're hilarious. They're dating a wonderful person and they've Put that measure of hope in those things and it has failed them and disappointed them and you're looking at the wreckage. What do you even say to somebody like that? You shouldn't have done that. I told you so. Hear now the word of God. Hear what God speaks to the exiles in verses five and six. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. (laughs) Jeremiah is talking about Jesus, the son of David, the righteous branch, the wise king. That's where he turns the exiles. Now I'm a little bit afraid because we're about to have a two-dimensional sermon here, right? You came to a church and you're about to hear what you expected to hear, that you are the problem and that Jesus is the solution. There's a lot of days I would apologize for that, and I would really try to be innovative and avant-garde and say it with a twist, but today is not one of those days. We are going to hear Jesus as our answer. Jesus said once in his ministry to a group of harassed Israelites under Roman oppression who actually looked like a lot like harassed Israelites under Babylonian oppression, Do not be anxious about the things of the world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Christian, there is great gain in pressing in to the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we're going to do today. I want us to hear that Jesus is righteous, I want us to hear that Jesus acts righteously, and I want us to hear that Jesus gives us his righteousness. Number one, Jesus is righteous. Verse five, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Jesus is righteous. In fact, the apostle John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. First John 2.1, that's his title for him. Jesus is the spotless, just, virtuous perfection of God. In his ministry, God declared over him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' righteousness is the pleasure of God's soul. If you'll let yourself You can get lost in the righteousness of Jesus. I mean that in a good and a beautiful way. You can begin to pull out attribute after attribute of Jesus that is born out of the wellspring of his righteousness and you can drink deeply from each one of those. His grace, his glory, his peace, his justice, his mercy, his love, his truth. Jesus is righteous. When I'm left to myself, I feel like I'm in a vacuum. I only see my world, myself, what I'm doing. It makes sense to me to build my worth on my work. I'm alone. That's all I have. That's all I know how to do. But the second I put that temptation into this world of finding my ultimate worth and satisfaction in my parenting or in my work or in my marriage, and it is next to the true source of ultimate worth and satisfaction, Jesus Christ the righteous, everything else is exposed as counterfeit. It is not true. It will not hold my weight. Jesus is righteous. Number two, Jesus acts righteously. Verse five, this is the description of his kingship. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. If Jesus is righteous, it follows that he will act out of his righteousness. If the branch is righteous, it will follow that the fruit will be righteous too. Whether you are a Christian or not, does your heart not yearn for a king who deals wisely, who rules justly, who will bring righteousness to this land? You and I, we suffer from this inverted Midas touch. It's in our nature. It's what we do to make idols out of everything we touch and to seek to put our weight on them and watch them dissolve and disappoint us. That's what we do as human beings. We're gonna do that this afternoon. I'm gonna do that as I'm preaching this sermon and hope people will like it and be changed by it. We're gonna do this Monday through Friday in our offices, in our family, in our workplaces, wherever we are. This is our nature. This is our knee-jerk reaction. We are going to do this. Can we even fathom the opposite? That whatever Jesus touches, that whatever he puts his hand to is golden. It's glorious. It is worthy. When Jesus thinks, he thinks the thoughts of God. He's enamored by Trinitarian glory when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. When you read on the page that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, Lazarus, come out. These are the very words from the very mouth of God. Whatever he does is the will of God. Water to wine, silencing the wind and the waves, washing his disciples' feet, serving the Lord's Supper, carrying his cross. This is the very hand of God. These things are the wisdom, they're the justice, they're the righteousness of God. When the Apostle John, who was one of the closest men in the world to Jesus during his life and ministry, wrote a book that is just dripping with the righteousness of Jesus, he gets to the end of 21 chapters and he says, my pen could not keep up with the goodness of Jesus. I suppose all the books in the world could not contain the goodness, the virtue that I have seen. Jesus is righteous. Jesus acts righteously. Number three, Jesus gives righteousness. I want us to think about this very carefully. It would be a mercy for this alone to be true. That even in our idolatry, even putting our worth and reputation in other things, we were by some glimmer of hope able to see Jesus and his righteousness from afar. If you could just see it, if you could just know it was true, if you could have your mind changed by something that you saw from afar, that alone would be a mercy to us. That would be a gift to us as human beings to know it's true, but to never experience the righteousness of God. But Jeremiah 23 says something very different. It speaks the unspeakable. For any human being, any human being, no matter how much ash we are surrounded by, if we will repent of misplaced worth and by faith place and find their worth in Jesus alone, he will give the gift of justification. Justification, it's a twofold declaration. We are forgiven of our unrighteousness. We are forgiven of all the moments we have gone astray and placed our worth in something else that is clean from us, that is placed on the cross, and we are forgiven, but we are not left in a neutral state. We are not immoral, because God then gives us his righteousness. He declares it over us. Verse 6, this is the name. This is the name that Jesus wants to go by. You know him as Jesus. You know him as Messiah. Learn the name of Jeremiah 23, 6. The Lord is our righteousness. 600 years later, the Apostle Paul agrees in 2 Corinthians 5.1, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. In Christ, I am not my marriage and my spouse is not my Messiah. In my workplace, I am not the sum of what I can produce. I'm not my body. I'm not my hobbies. I'm not my children's obedience. I'm not the cleanliness of my house. I'm not even the good things that I can do for this church. I'm not the strength of my holiness. I'm not the sexiness of my spiritual gifts. When I am stripped of all of those things, when I have been let down by all of those things, when they have betrayed me or I have failed in them, I am in exile in a foreign land, and this is the banner over me. The Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, you're asking us to stand up and sing impossible words. We're going to say the line in front of other people and in front of you, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you and I know that that's going to be a battle for the rest of our lives. We're going to fight you on that. We're going to build on soft and sandy ground. We're going to resist you at every turn. However, we need to sing that today, whether that's a promise or a declaration, whether that is the deepest confession of sin we can say, let us sing truly and sincerely that this is the desire of our hearts. I am done building on other ground. Let me build on Jesus's blood and his righteousness for your glory forever and ever and ever. Do it, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.